Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us here on a cloudy day in a very deserted city of Westminster as once again we put the topic of leadership under the microscope. I'm Scott Challoner and I'm joined on today's programme by Duncan Kirk. Duncan is the Managing Director and Owner of the Bakewell Tart Shop and Coffee House in Bakewell, Derbyshire. Duncan, welcome to the programme and it's great to have you on the air with us today. Hi Scott, how are you going? Doing fantastically, thank you, and it's great having you um, on. Now, um, first and foremost, the purpose of this podcast is to sort of gather your take on leadership. And leadership is really being put to the test at the moment, isn't it, with the whole COVID-19 outbreak and business leaders having to navigate their firms through that. So tell me, for somebody in your industry especially, how has it been trying to get through the last few weeks? Because I can imagine it's been really disruptive and it's shut most things down. Yes, clearly it's um, all been very muddled and very different from what you're expecting this time of year to be. Um, from a leadership point of view, I guess we're split into two parts at the minute. One is how do we make the business survive? And the second part is how do we keep all the team together or keep the team motivated under very unique sets of circumstances? Um, the the way we tackle that just is going to change is based on how long we go for and how long the circumstances survive. So we've got to constantly adapt and um, review and um, see how people are feeling and see how we can uh, positively impact people around us. Mm, absolutely. And um, you're somebody who has over 30 years experience in various industries, of course, Duncan. Um, it's often said that this is very much unprecedented times that we're in here. Um, is this? Have you ever had a learning curve like this before in your career and had to take decisions like this? <laughs> No, and the other side, absolutely nothing ever like it. And the other thing is we don't know if we're doing it right. So you you kind of have to believe that you're doing the right thing and seek feedback, but none of us are truly going to know if we've handled this situation that we all find ourselves in um, correctly or incorrectly and if we could have done it better. Um, But what I also hope is it's only a one-off that we never have to take Mm. the learning from this specific one and do it exactly the same again. Um, I can imagine, absolutely. And um, hindsight, of course, is um, a wonderful thing. And as you say, we won't know if the decisions that have been taken by businesses and indeed by the government will be the right decisions until further down the line where we can look back at it retrospectively. Um, with that in mind, do you think part of being a leader is very much trial and error at times, making mistakes and then learning from them? Because it's not really possible to improve without that, is it? Um, you're 100% correct, but not just learning from your own mistakes, but learning from the successes and failures that you see others have. Um, so, you know, the leaders that we all become is very much impacted by the leaders we've had along the way, but not just good ones, bad ones, things that work for us, things that don't work for us. Um, but also being a leader, you've got to embrace your failures. Um, you manage your setbacks, you learn and move on. If you're not doggedly, doggedly resilient as a leader, you'll 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 fail, ultimately fail. But if you keep that resilience and that belief and that positivity, then then we'll get through. We'll survive and the business will be stronger for it. Mm, Certainly. And um, when we talk about um, others as well and learning from others, um, are there any examples of people who've maybe had an influence on you and your own leadership model um, as you've gone through your career? Uh, Absolutely. But, uh, you know, I can single people out, but uh, but everybody to some degree has had an impact on me being the person I am and what I consider to be good examples of their, their leadership or poor examples of their leadership. But every example is something that um, has influenced me, good, bad or indifferent, because you, you look at that and say, right, what would I have done in that situation? And what would the impact have been? 
you know, did I get the desired impact? Did I not get the desired impact? Did they get the desired impact? So every every element is continually learning. And even now, so whilst I run my own business now, I'm still engaged with other business people locally or with suppliers that run their business and so on. So you can watch and learn from those too. And you'll see good things and bad things, but everything is something you can learn from. Absolutely. And you say that we're, of course, um, entirely a product of the experiences that we have, be those good or bad. Um, if you could, of course, um, speak to yourself, um, say, 10, 20 years ago, uh, Duncan, um, is there anything yep. that you would tell the younger you to do differently or any particular qualities that you would tell them to embrace going forward? I would definitely have studied human psychology a lot earlier in my career. I'm fascinated by it, but I think it's critical to understand the psychology of the people you're working with or the people you're trying to lead or the people that are trying to lead you. So understanding what their motivating factors are, what they're trying to achieve, what their body language says, what their, you know, everything about human psychology is critical to being, or understanding human psychology is critical to being a good leader. So even here, we'll have people that come to work and they're, they're motivated by by the paycheck at the end of the week. We'll have other people that are motivated by being praised or patted on the back. We'll have other people that are motivated by community aspect and being part of a team or speaking to the the, the local population around here. There'll be different motivations. It's not a, there's never a cookie cutter, one size fits all answer. So going back to your original question, the first thing I would study more as a younger me would be human psychology. And understanding of that and how to manage people is of huge importance at the moment, especially, isn't it? Where we're working remotely, teams, of course, have to maintain communication, but leaders also have to kind of keep tabs on what people are doing as well. And that's hugely important as well. It's um, something to do with uh, the culture that you instill on a business, isn't it? That maintaining that communication. Yeah, so it's, it's the communication is obviously critical and it's, it's very, very difficult. But what people, what our team, and I'm sure it's the same for many teams, are really missing right now is the feeling of being part of a team. Mm. So when they're working from home, that's or clearly from our business, it's hard for them to work from home. But isn't that, that feeling of being part of a team, part of a family has been taken away. So trying to create a communication environment that allows not just me to communicate to the team or the team to communicate to me, but creating a form where they're communicating with one another. Because whilst there are friends within the team, they don't all necessarily communicate with one another outside of work on a normal basis. So retaining some level of team spirit and team focus and sharing in one another's stories and challenges and difficulties is really, really critical. Um, And so then when they all come back to work, they still feel um, invested in one another and part of one another, wanting to support one another. Um, so keeping that going now is really, really important. Um, otherwise, people are going to feel very distant, distanced and cut off. I would agree with that. And it's uh, very much about sort of keeping that sense of uh, unity at the moment. If we do touch back on human psychology uh, for a moment, because I did find that point quite interesting. It's one of those things that you can essentially read upon and learn about going forward. And it's one of those things that you pick up that can make you a better leader, having a greater understanding of how people function. Now, We talked earlier about people having a certain drive and motivation, being motivated by certain things. For one to become a good leader, is that sort of thing that comes from within that self-motivation, that drive, something that you just have to come with ready-made? Is that the one thing that you can't teach people? Um, Yeah. So from a personal point of view, I will always recruit for attitude rather than aptitude because I can teach skills. 
I can't teach attitude. So if I if I recruit someone that's got some drive and some energy and some belief and some resilience and some um, passion to learn, then I'm going to be delighted because if they've got that passion to learn, you can teach them whatever skills they're required, and they'll then move on and be successful. So I'll always t- always recruit for attitude first. Um, from a psychology point of view, then it's also it's understanding that psychology is only good if you can adapt your leadership style to suit that individual. So we have to tailor as leaders. We have to tailor our styles for whichever person or whichever group or whichever team we are trying to lead. Um, so as I say, the different people will be motivated by different things, and my style will have to um, be adapted to to get the best from each individual. Um, so you have to tailor your styles to the individual, tailor your styles to suit the occasion, tailor your styles to suit um, a big team, a small team, etc. Um, so yeah, um, but then going back to the other part of the question, you have to once you've got that passion and energy, you have to be incredibly resilient. Um, you know, times like now show us that we get knocked back or things will come out of left field, very much unexpected. If you if you lack that resilience, we'll fall over and we'll not only will we lose this business, but the the 15, 20 people that work here, their families and their um, and their kids and their partners, they'll all be impacted and suffer in some way. So it's up to us to keep that resilience going and that belief and that strength to make sure we come out of it strong on the other side. Of course, and resilience is so, so important, but also adaptability and innovation, as you mentioned there. And that's the same for business, isn't it? It's uh, not just essentially what a business leader has to do to manage different groups of people. It's not just a part of people management. Business essentially has to do exactly the same, especially at the moment in a changing landscape, if it is to seize upon the opportunities after this pandemic. You're hitting that on the head in terms of adaptability and uh, there as well. So, you know, our business four weeks ago is a very different business to what it is today. You know, to keep it ticking over today, we've become an online business, we've become a home delivery business. That was just things that we wouldn't have considered four weeks ago as being important for us carrying on. It also, you know, our business has, has gone from being a tourist-based business in, in the Peak District to being a community-based business where we um, provide that service for locals that wouldn't necessarily be a core part of our business. So that very much changes your focus, changes the way you communicate, changes the way you market, changes what you have to do to to be successful. Um, so yeah, ad- adaptability is absolutely critical. And it, the other thing that's critical that goes with that adaptability is then the preparedness to change. And that's not just in terms of decision making, but it's also preparedness to change in um, in how you how you communicate, how you um, market your offer. Um, if you get things wrong, you have to be prepared to say, "I've got this wrong. We need to turn around." Um, and right now, the the landscape is changing on a day to day, week to week basis. So that um, preparedness to change is critical. Mm. Can't be stubborn. Absolutely right. And do you think that sometimes um, people? are held back from adapting because they are afraid of the failure of taking a risk as well? Um, I think some people are risk averse, naturally. I think humans um, are predominantly risk averse, but there's calculated risk and there's careless risk. Mm. So we have to take calculated risk. But I think what people are as scared of, in terms, or particularly scared of, is not just risk and being wrong, but having to admit they're wrong. Um, and being prepared to admit you're wrong and change things is um, is critical. Is critical because if your stubbornness gets in the way, 
you end up going down a um, you end up exaggerating and exacerbating everything you've got wrong beforehand. And it also requires a little bit of a thick skin, doesn't it? Because when you do, of course, stand upon the parapet and admit, of course, wrongdoing, um, and maybe you've had to change direction, you are in the line for criticism as well, aren't you? And um, maybe some younger generations especially are a little bit fearful of that. Yeah, you have to be prepared to be criticised. You have to you have to ultimately be brave as a, as a leader. Um, it, brave to get things wrong and brave in making um, tough or hard decisions that might not be the popular ones. Um, Getting, getting things wrong is part and parcel of life. Um, failure to admit them is, is what we can avoid. We can't avoid getting things wrong. We just need to avoid repeating the same mistakes. I think um, that's some very, very sound advice indeed. And if we do uh, keep the future in mind um, and think about the next 12 months, um, what do you hope collectively that the business can um, achieve in that time, Duncan? And um, especially not just navigating COVID-19, but also out the other side and uh, what you hope to achieve beyond that as well. So for our business, um, you know, anything that returns to normal is obviously going to be a a positive impact. So the first thing I hope um, when the restrictions are lifted, is it's restricted. The restrictions on people's movement comes back, so the towns such as Bakewell can um, thrive once again on the back of tourism. Um, what the last few weeks have taught us for this business is what we can do from a community point of view. So whilst we have a core business that is tourist-based, the local business, which is community-based, we can do a lot more for. Um, and we're making inroads in that direction, but not necessarily as many as we want to do. Um, so if our business is going to be different in 12 months' time to what it was before um, the coronavirus outbreak started, it's where we stand in our local community as, as much as what we can do from a tourist point of view. Absolutely. And let's hope, of course, that we do start seeing the fog lift sooner rather than later and we do start seeing things turn around in that sense. Um, What I think would actually be fantastic, Duncan, is in the next few months, once we do start seeing things subside a little bit in terms of the lockdown, we can maybe have you back on the air and look at this retrospectively and just see how things have panned out and how the business is getting on. But for now, I have to say it's been really insightful and also an absolute pleasure having you on today's programme. And thank you so much for taking the time to come on and speak with me today for the benefit of the listeners. Uh, thank you for having me, Scott. It's been a pleasure. And best of hope stay, stay, stay safe for you and your family and all your listeners out there. Yeah, yourself as well. Um, do take care and do stay safe, especially with everything still going on at the moment. Um, coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with England's 1966 Football World Cup hero, Sir Jeff Hurst, as well as scoring over 200 league goals during his football career for the likes of West Ham United and Stoke City. Sir Jeff remains the only man to this day to have scored a hat-trick in the final of a World Cup. That came after his treble in England's 4-2 win over West Germany at the Old Wembley 54 long years ago. I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking with Sir Jeff and that's coming up next. Uh, We're now joined uh, though by former England footballer and still the only man to score a hat-trick in a World Cup final, Sir Jeff Hurst. Uh, Thank you very much for coming on today. uh, You're welcome. You're welcome. Good afternoon. Uh, and perhaps I should uh, start and get it over and done with. I know you must be bored with it and uh, you've probably been asked a thousand times. But when you got out for a duck playing for Essex, uh, Jeff, what was going through your head at the time? <laughs> well, of course, that's not one of the most asked questions I get. Although there, there are one or two people who are very familiar um, who, who do Google me realise that I did uh, score nothing for Essex. Uh, for my only game for Essex first team 
when we played against Lancashire in Liverpool, a place called uh, uh, Egbert in, in, uh, in Liverpool, many, many years ago, 1962, I think that was. So I didn't, and, um, yes, I, I didn't really feel it at the time. It was lucky to be <laughs> playing, I guess, with one or two injuries. Um, but the problem that I had was, was really messing about between the two sports. That was very detrimental to me uh, over that period of time, mm. being stuck between the two sports. And I think uh, for those that uh, don't know, there's a there's a, another world that might exist where um, Sir Jeff Hurst was a, a first class cricketer and not perhaps a, a footballer. But um, whether it's business or cricket or or football, obviously the importance of leadership it can't be understated, no matter what form that comes in. When you were at West Ham, uh, Jeff, and when um, Ron Greenwood first uh, uh, came along, he made obviously some pretty radical changes. Was this a man that genuinely inspired confidence uh, the first time you'd meet him? Absolutely. I mean, he, he was simply a, a fantastic uh, coach or teacher, if you like, at the football. And uh, the, the quite always mentioned when we talk about Ron Greenwood, Harry Redknapp, who was played under him and has been very successful as a player and, and the manager over many, many, many years. He and He's come across many coaches, of course, and managers during his time over years, I guess he would still say that Ron Greenwood is the best coach he had worked with. He'd worked with. So you're very fortunate. I think you, you think you're lucky when you come across if you have a great teacher at school and a great coach as we had in Ron Greenwood. And of course, a great manager in Sir Alf Ramsey. So to come across people like that, of that calibre, can have a huge influence on your, your career, of course, and, and then your life. And that's, that's quite purely the case. Absolutely. And in those early days um, at West Ham, uh, with, with a manager like, like uh, Ron uh, there, it's also important to have uh, uh, confidence with your other players. And of course, they become your friends. Who did you look at to at the time uh, when to inspire confidence in yourself? Was it more? Was it Peter's? I think probably, well, I was very fortunate to play with the calibre of the players I did. Again, again, extremely fortunate to play with you know, the captain um, of England and West Ham and Martin Peters, who was a fantastic player. And some, as far as Martin's concerned, I think sometimes he didn't quite get the uh, recognition he deserved. What a wonderful player he was. In terms of inspiring confidence, I always probably say that the biggest influence uh, for me, I guess, would be the captain, Bob Noor. Although he was only... Uh, about eight months older than me, he graduated through the system probably three or four years earlier. He played for England in 62, four years before the final when I played. And so he, he was more, looked upon him more as a senior player, if you like, not as a, a guy with the same age group as me. And I looked at how he, how he uh, trained, how he acted, how he behaved, and how he played. And so he, he would say, I would also say he was a big influence on me. One thing I would say about leadership, uh, what I do, I do understand clearly in all walks of life, leadership is at the top, is absolutely vital for a, a, for a business, a football team, in any walk of life to be successful. And it's quite evident, I was in the motor trade for a long time as well, selling car warranties to car dealerships, and you could almost tell when you walked into the business, uh, in a, many of the car dealerships, you could almost tell from the moment you walked in by initial reaction people came and welcomed you 
that the business is well run or conversely not well run at all. And so I understand the, the, the value and quality of leadership. And that's why I'm very fortunate to be involved with my career in those early days with two, two great leaders in, in Ron Greenwood and, and Alf Ramsey. Absolutely. And um, since you've already uh, brought him up, uh, Jeff, I think it'd be remiss not to go a little bit further with that. But obviously, uh, after uh, at West Ham, your uh, plan came to the attention of uh, South Ramsey. Now, there's a man, I'm sure, when you walked into a room, you knew who was um, in charge. When it came to managing that England team, what was his style like, Jeff? Well, one thing, especially with South Ramsey, he's probably over my life the most powerful influence who had on me um, as a person. Um, naturally, it happens to an extent because he's got your whole career in his hand, whether he picks you for England or he doesn't pick you. It can have a great impact on your, <laughs> your career and, of course, your life. But yep. in that era I was involved for six or seven years, he it was quite clear who was the boss. He was quite very, very strict. Probably at a time... At, Maybe overly strict for the time. You probably wouldn't get necessarily get away with it in, in today's football because it's changed dramatically in how you deal with with players then and players now. But he was the most powerful man I came across, and very few people. And he, he was quite ruthless in getting people out who didn't want to be who didn't want to be part of a group, part of a team. It is important that if you've got a group of people, and that's in any walk of life, they're all singing off the same hymn sheet, and you don't have anybody that's griping or moaning about the system. And if you've got people like that in the organisation, one thing I have learned and I've taken on in my life, my family, you've got somebody in a group that doesn't want to be part of it, you, you get them out. And Alf, I think, was was quite ruthless with that in his, in his staff. And I think that's one, thing I, one of the most serious ones I think I've learned over a long period of time. And is there, do you think... Uh a specific moment, I'm sure there's probably dozens, but is there a specific moment, Jeff, you could uh, perhaps pick right now that did show those uh, qualities in uh, Sir Alf so uh, sharply? Yes, I think for, for me, certainly, um, I think there are instances of players who you thought would, would be in the team or certainly in the squad and surprising there were not. There was no necessary reason for it. But looking mm. back, I do think perhaps they were people that Alf didn't think wanted to be part of the group. Um, so that that's that for me. In terms of my personal view, I think that it looked prior to the um, World Cup that I was going to be playing um, in it, only a few games before. I was I was playing and I played with Jimmy Greaves in the game against Yugoslavia only a couple of months before the final. And it looked at that stage as if I was going to be playing in, in the team but uh, in a couple of friendly games more friendly games before the final in Poland and uh, uh, Norway I think in Denmark mm. I didn't I played two of the four games and I probably didn't quite replicate my my form that I'd been showing at West Ham and in the early couple of games for England and he he left me out in the first game of, of the World Cup against uh, Uruguay he started off with Jimmy Green and so I, I had an impact of thinking I at that stage I, like I was going to play and didn't start because of just a lack of form. I didn't play quite well enough to justify my position. And somewhat fortuitously, I only got back into it because of a, a nasty gash to shin um, on Jimmy Lee's leg. 
And I think what you've said there, uh, Jeff, actually does sum that up really well. And more than that, whilst it's important to have that someone in charge with those qualities, it's almost useless if there isn't a strong and unified team behind them. And there really must have been moments, maybe there weren't, but uh, let us know in that 66 competition, the prolonged pressure on all of you, you know, the weight of a nation, did it get to you? Oh, not for me personally, no. I, I think, and I don't, uh, not for me, not for a second. I think mm. I was just happy to be, you know, be involved in the squad initially. Uh, not at all. I didn't, you're not aware of the magnitude of the occasion, really, looking back out, mm. out. So I never really felt, people talk about pressure a lot and it's there and people, players talk about it, people talk about it in life. I didn't really feel necessary to feel any great pressure, pressure during the time I was there. And what is also important to say about Alf Ramsey, the people he, he left behind that were left in the squad after he'd moved one or two players out, the squad were uh, a, a bunch of very hard-nosed, professional, uh, top-quality people. And that was, again the leadership that I'll show you, you got people in together that were very, very strong personally. Um, uh, and I think that was part of the success we had. We were very, I always describe our, our group as hard-nosed professionals. Um, we had some great players, but overall they were great hard-nosed professional players um, and great quality people who we've kept in contact with, you know, over the years. And Jeff, I've got to ask, and I'm, I'm not making this up, I've genuinely heard that people do ask you whether or not you realised there were people on the pitch at that moment. I imagine you were busy on something else. Well, I, I did some theatre shows last year. They've gone fairly well, and we're going to do a series of uh, theatre shows, in fact, starting this week, over the next uh, two or three months. And uh, at the end of the theatre shows, we have about 20 minutes where we uh, uh, allow the people in the audience to ask questions. And there's, I won't mention both. They're too long to talk about both questions. Um, one, the other one's a really stupid one. It's too long for me to tell you. It's absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> but the, the, the other ridiculous question I get asked, did I realise there were people on the pitch? And, of course, I jokingly say, yes, I was just about to, to shoot to score the goal. And I looked round, put my foot on the ball, and looked round for a little while, and said, "Oh dear, there are six or seven people running on the pitch." So that—I've uh, had been asked that once at one of the theatre shows. <laughs> so I joke, make a joke about that, and saying, "Yes, I put my foot on the ball and waited, but just had a, look, had a glance round, you know." Maybe it does prove there are things that, such as stupid questions, really. Um... Oh yeah, there are. There certainly are. I've got another one which I won't bore you with. It won't be too long to tell you. Uh, I was in a Jersey or Channel Lines, Jersey or Jersey, two or three mm. years ago, and most stu- stupid, irrelevant questions, absolutely nothing to do with football whatsoever, which uh, was absolutely. But I can use that now because it, it is quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe another time then. But we. Um, uh, well, you want me, I, I can tell you if you want. You want. You got time. I can tell, I tell you if you want. Jeff, go on. Go. On. I think I'd be, it would be silly if I said no at this point. Okay, so I was uh, doing a. a at a dinner in the Channel Lines, three or four hundred people, black tie dinner, uh, guest of honor. Mm-hmm. And this occasion, I was speaking for about 20 minutes, then allowing uh, questions from the audience at the end of the evening. And there was usual football questions. And then all of a sudden, I heard a, somebody at the back who 
who asked the question. I didn't quite hear what he said. He didn't have the microphone with him. So I said, I didn't hear what he said. Can you please give mm. this chap the microphone so I can hear clearly what he said? So the chap had the mic and he said, when a turtle loses its shell, is it naked or is it homeless? Right. <laughs> what, what a question. What a question. Uh, well, I think that would be in, definitely in the stupid category, wouldn't it? So we had a laugh about that. Is- uh, well, uh, and we, you've got to have a patient of a saint, I think, sometimes to put up with <laughs> well, things no, like that. But then again, I found it amusing. I just found it amusing. In fact, some of the audience found it highly amusing as well. So it, it, uh, um, it did but make then again, laugh, if, you put, if you can put up with my questions, you can probably put up with uh, anything. <laughs> um, but there, there would have become a point, though, um, Jeff, I think. Um, you, you were a young man when... See, this happened when you must have realised that people, teammates, began looking at you for leadership. Um, is that something that occurred to you, or did you just realise that by, by quick, one way or the other, people actually begin to look up for you for inspiration? Well, possibly. That's never really struck me until you've actually mentioned it now, quite frankly. That's a new, a new question. Mm. Does anybody look up to me? I'm sure perhaps uh, there are there are people who pay you compliments of the fans of, of West Ham and uh, of Stoke and of course in, uh, England fans who um, I, I think probably uh, it would be very immodest of me to to suggest I, I felt that somebody was looking to me for inspiration. Um, you, but, you don't but, have to, but I will. No, um, it's, it's okay for a third party to do it, perhaps. Um, perhaps that may have been the case over the years. Uh, people look at you and um, uh, maybe uh, it has a uh, helpful effect. Uh, but I do think you, you, how you behave and set examples on and off the pitches, people must realise that that's, that has an influence, how you react and behave mm. to, to situations on and off the field. Surely, probably has an impact to younger players coming in into the team latterly. Um, yeah, and and with that, looking at um, uh, football today, uh, is there anybody that you think particularly on the field or the sidelines that strikes you as someone with um, those qualities that you could identify in a in a natural leader? Um. Well, a play, current players, you mean? Oh, players, managers, anybody that uh, you look to today, really? Well, I think some of the outstanding. I think the, the, the best example about a, a leader and at the moment is is, is uh, Klopp at Liverpool. Mm. He has been absolutely fantastic to uh, acquire the players and get them to their attitude is absolutely fantastic. They're great players, but there's more than just being good players in football. It's that a good player with a fantastic attitude and their willingness to work for each other and the team is absolutely outstanding. Hence these unbelievable results. There are, you know, and the great players not always succeed as, as individuals or probably even uh, certainly as a team if you haven't got the right attitude alongside it. And they're probably, and that, that comes through the leadership. That's not just... Luck. Absolutely. That's, that's absolutely leadership. He'd be the best example, of course, in, in football terms today. Uh, easily, easily. And of course, but going back not that long ago, Alex Ferguson, who's just absolutely mm. 
you've got to take him as the first example because Klopp's only done this over a period of time, a short period of time. But if you look at the 25, 26, 27 years that Alex Ferguson did with Manchester United and subsequently since he's gone, how they they are not doing so well. He's the best example of management I've seen, we've seen, we've probably ever seen. And I don't think anybody will see the light of that kind of leadership again. It's absolutely astonishing, astonishing. And do you think, could you imagine uh, Sir Alf or even Ron Greenwood managing teams today? Yes, I think so. I think, yes, no, hmm. no question at all. I think they, uh, Ron Greenwood, yeah, the answer is straightforward. The answer is yes. Um, That's a they, <laughs> The straightforward answer is yes. I can elaborate as much as you want, but the straight answer is absolutely categorically yes. Uh, and with, um, and I know uh, if we could talk about this probably for the next hour or so, but um, I'm conscious of the um, time. Um, looking um, back uh, through your um, playing career, perhaps especially um, your time uh, for England, who was it uh, that struck you more than anyone else on the pitch uh, that displayed qualities of not just leadership but uh, companionship and and level headedness that you think that have stuck with you all these years later. Well, I think we were I was very fortunate, and I wouldn't pick any one player out. I think looking at so that, many. yeah, so many, and that's why we were successful because we had so many um, showing all those qualities that you just mentioned uh, throughout the team. I think that that was outstanding, and uh, uh, and it's an opportunity to talk about. Uh, all of them in, in that breath, and there was nobody. And I'm going back from an earlier earlier question for me: the um, all hard nosed professionals, good good teammates, mm. good socially, and that's why we kept in touch with each other on our golf days every year uh, up until about five years ago. Of course, with, with the sadly dwindling yes. numbers, we we still got on. Our wives got on with, all together. All those years later, it didn't just finish. After '66, that reunion, that camaraderie, that team spirit, mm. the, um, getting on with each other, lasted for, for a long, long, long time. And I wouldn't and, when it, when you put those those questions and how you categorise those, I would pick every one of the eleven players um, who you put in that category that were like that. There was nobody else; they were all outstanding, and I think that was. A big part. I can't stress how big Absolutely. a part that was, and I've said that many, many times for the success of the team. We have some great and players. You... We have some great players, of course, but without the attitude <laughs> alongside that, going back to an earlier question, you we wouldn't have been as uh, ultimately, ultimately as successful. Exactly. Without that, you, the, the the whole will never be greater than the sum of its parts. But with it, yes, the word, the word is team. the word is t- the word is team. Absolutely. And I always use the word team when I talk sometimes. Uh, together, everyone achieves more, and that—that's the same in any walk of life. That, that's fundamental. And uh, lastly, uh, Jeff, looking—if if you were to uh, give advice, and whether this is in sport or business or indeed any other walk of life, what would you identify, if you can, as the key tenant uh, that you can't go without in terms of leading a team, no matter what that team is? Single minded. Uh, Single-mindedness, dedication, dedication to the job, um, 
thinking about that 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 role, that job in leadership all the time. It's a huge part of your life. But it, you, I don't think you can switch off when you're in, in business at the top level or sport at the top level. You may, you know, have a, way, have a couple of weeks holiday, but I'm even sure if, if these top managers and lead, leaders in all walks of life are away on holiday on a beach somewhere warm, I'm sure there's not, uh, there's, they will not switch off for, for two weeks um, and completely uh, not think about their role as the boss of an organisation. And I think that's, you're completely focused. You're always thinking about uh, things, thinking about improvements, and it's just dedication and uh, uh, tuning your life to being successful. Excellent. Well, Jeff, on that point, thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. Very good to nice to have a talk about this and just go over this, go over the past and just uh, refresh my mem- my own memory about the quality of the players I grew up with. Excellent. Uh, another time, uh, it would be great to talk again. Thank, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.